0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Bell Podcast. I'm your host, Marcy Timmerman, Executive Director of Mental Health America of Kentucky. This episode has a trigger warning. We are going to be discussing a parent's point of view of her situation with her son who has co-occurring substance use disorder and mental illness, bipolar disorder. If hearing about drug use or mental health symptoms and signs is a trigger for you, skip this podcast episode. If you are a person with lived experience with mental illness and substance use disorder, please keep in mind this is one person's story about her experiences as a parent. This does not necessarily reflect every situation and every parent. No story or book or podcast can. Finally, if hearing about incarceration is a trigger for you, this is probably not a great podcast episode. We have plenty of others to choose from. Now that you've decided to stick with us, I have with me today Janice Morgan, author of Suspended Sentence, When My Son is Arrested for Possession of a Stolen Firearm and Drug Charges. I start to realize that he isn't the only one who has recovery work to do. Is available in many independent bookstores, is available online at bookshop.com, and is, of course, on Amazon. Make sure to select Mental Health America of Kentucky as your Amazon smile recipient if you plan to buy it there. <laughs> Ms. Morgan, thank you for agreeing to this interview. Your bio indicates you are a teacher of French language literature and history at a rural Kentucky college. You obviously are also a mother. Can you tell us more about yourself?
1: Yes, and thank you for having me today. Um, well, I've, I've lived in Kentucky for 30 years now, but I'm not from here. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and I lived there until I was 12. And um, my dad was a professor in medical school, and he eventually got a new job in Indianapolis. So we moved to Indiana, uh, where I spent my teen years, and I later went to Indiana University in Bloomington. And it's funny, because when I went into college, I thought I would become a journalist, And I was interested in social issues at that time. It was a a time of a lot of ferment and so forth at the late 60s, early 70s. And so, um, but then when I was in college, I sort of, um, it was a great time for me. And I I decided to go into uh, (laughs) um, literature. So because I was interested in French too, I uh, thought, well, maybe I'll have more chance at travel and adventure if I if I go the French route. So I chose that. And, you know, education was in my family. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a professor. So I kind of followed their footsteps. And, um, but when I finished my education, uh, there was an economic downturn and I found it difficult to find a tenure track position. I had to search very hard and I had to take, I had to become a gypsy scholar for three years. And I eventually um, found a job here in West Kentucky, which I'm very glad about. It's been a great career and very interesting place to live. And I did have a family. My son was born in 1987. That took me in a whole different direction. (laughs) That's one of the themes of my book, actually, is the sense that the mom has that she's living a double life. You know, there's the career that's very easy to plan for, it's well-ordered, you know, there's plenty of goal-setting and teamwork and so forth. Whereas in my my personal life, oh my goodness, I, I had a difficult marriage um, and my son was very, very volatile. And so those two things uh, really developed over the years and, and I'm still <laughs> kind of aware of them uh, today even, although less so. Um, mm. But I think that's, yeah, that's kind of one of the themes, the double life and having to to deal with a situation at home that is really quite difficult to understand and quite chaotic, too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of families out there that have that experience, for sure. Um and, and I'm glad to hear someone else talk about that difference, right, of career versus home, uh, mm. especially now as we sit in the COVID-19 pandemic right. recording this. I think yeah. there are a lot of folks who realize that there are so many worlds they were straddling before they were able to compartmentalize that they can't do now. So right. I think we're seeing that. Right. And with folks with mental illnesses in the home, I think that's even worse um, for them in some ways, just because it is more stressful and more of that um, volatility, as you put it, I like that word, uh, that volatility can be exploited a bit and we can see it more, you know, it's more in our face. So that's interesting. Right. right. I'm curious though, like as I was reading the book and I really appreciate the reading of the book, it was a great book. Um, and I think everyone should read it. So if you're just listening to this and you haven't read it yet, you should. I was wondering what made you decide to write it? and ultimately publish it. Like, I understand writing can be very therapeutic, so maybe not everyone enters with the publishing in mind. I was wondering, like, kind of what your process was when you started.
1: Well, I think at first I just wrote mainly to keep track of what was happening, because as I said, there was so much chaos, particularly after my son was arrested. Things were happening, you know, every single day, and I had to write things down to just keep track of them. Mm -hmm. And then it evolved from that into being a way for me to, as you said, it was therapeutic. It allowed me to express my anxieties and my worries and my expectations and my hopes and my fears. And so that aspect of it grew, but I, you know, I could have just kept it as a personal journal. I think the reason I decided to actually try to make it into a story that other people could read and and publish it was that I felt, My gosh, why didn't anybody tell me that this thing, you know, this could happen? (laughs) You know, I I didn't know about this. How could this be? I mean, here we were, these educated professionals, but we had no clue about, you know, symptoms that could indicate that our son needed a mental health screening, that, you know, he might have a, a disorder that could be treated with medication and therapy. I mean, that was just not on the screen at all. And I just felt, you know, I know there's other people out there like me. I was, by that time, I was part of a NAMI family support group. I knew there were others of us out there, but I just didn't hear our stories anywhere. And I thought, this is not right. (laughs) You know, we need to give testimony here. We need to make our stories more public so that there'll be more discussion of these brain disorders and behaviors that are caused by them so that we can get help to people who need it. And so I think that really became the overriding um, motivation. I'm glad you decided to do it. So thank you for that, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, there's actually other people doing it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, just when I was doing it independently, you know, (laughs) in my my own upstairs room, it turns out that there are other moms and often they're mothers, not always mothers, Obviously, David Chef wrote Beautiful Boy, and he was a father, experienced some of these same things. But um, a lot of us now are moms. And, and I guess because we have the resources, we have the time, I'm retired now. You know, people who are in the throes of, you know, managing their busy lives, they don't have time to write a book. So, you know, I did, and and there's others out there who are doing that, and I I hope it will help.
0: I think every time we have someone um fight in the open as they say, and that's mm-hmm. someone with lived experience, but it also applies to parents, I think, who oh, um, yes, our caregivers. Not. it's it's important to fight in the open as much as we can and as safely as we can, right? So uh, I like that expression. Yeah. That's Friday. a, that's a MHA tagline that we have. And actually their national podcast is called uh, out in the open so they can talk about everything mm-hmm. very clearly and openly. Right. But we do recognize also that there's a piece of privilege of that, right? Not, not everyone is able to do that. Oh, no. at the time, Like you said, Absolutely. especially when they're juggling so many things um, right. and, you know, employers may have issues and things and kids may, not respond well to being talked about and such. But that's always a very important piece of what we see as advocacy as well as just education of what is going on. So I appreciate you being great about that with the book. And I'm glad that you wrote it and published it. I really liked this part of the book, um, as you probably picked up in our conversations before. Mm -hmm. Um, Several times you referred to personas you saw yourself taking on, like the rock, the rescuer, the worried mom. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if you think many other parents, especially of children with co-occurring issues, uh, move through these roles over time, too, or if you wanted to expand upon those kind of classifications. (laughs)
1: Oh, yes, sure. I mean, I, I I think we do. And I say that just having been a member of this family support group for so long, I think we all do. And we all get so much relief when we find out that other people are struggling with these same things. And that these are kind of syndromes <laughs> and, and cycling through that we go through. Um, but yeah, the personae are I think it's important to become aware of them because for me, for example, I think we do this unconsciously. Like I was unconsciously becoming the rock, what I call the rock. And that was a response to my son's volatility. I tend to be a little bit volatile myself. However, I learned um, not to be volatile when my son is volatile because the two of us will explode. And so I would take on, to counterbalance him, I would take on this aspect of just being totally calm nothing would you know ruffle my feathers i would be solid and just giving myself the cue like now i have to be the rock that just reinforced consciously what i was doing and i could see the humor of it also you know (laughs) the humor of me trying to be a rock um whereas i really am not at all but it was a role i was taking on to try to balance things and the worried mom, you know, how you get into the syndrome of constantly rehearsing your worries and anxieties and going around in circles, that being aware of that um, helped me take control of that to the extent that I could just tell myself, well, you're just worrying again. And it's not, you know, unless there's some action you can take or something specific you can do, there's no use in, in worrying. Just take a walk or do something different. The rescuer that's a really big one, because as a mom, you, you feel like it's your role to rescue your child and protect them and help them in every way possible. But I soon learned with a son who had you know, drug dependencies and some you know, behaviors that, that frankly needed to be changed on his part, that I was only enabling him if I felt that I had to do everything for him. Um, there's a lot of times when being a parent, you have to step back and let your, your child, your adult child even, just struggle with their own demons and, and struggle with their own um, behaviors and consequences and their own choices. And I still have to work on that one. That is, a, that is a hard one for me to step back from being the rescuer or when my son tells me a problem Not thinking, oh, I have to solve that. I have to come up with a solution to your problem. (laughs) I just feel that automatically. I think we all do.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: just so hard to break that chain and say, no, you know, I'm listening to you and I just need to empathize with you and maybe throw out some possibilities for you to think about. But, you know, ultimately I cannot solve, you know, the problems. I have to let you try to solve them.
0: And that's that takes a lot of growth and a lot of work and effort. Oh, part, a lot. So. And it, it
1: doesn't end. I mean, it's no. not like you learn it and then oh get it, good. Now you're home free. No, you have to keep practicing it. It's and never it's- second nature, awful. is it? <laughs> no, not at all.
0: It's been funny because um I have a six-year-old son and he doesn't seem to have any severe mental illness symptoms yet, of course, you know being in the field I'm in, of course I look for those just naturally, right? (laughs) But I've learned that like the social emotional learning pieces that they've added to schools since, you know, your son was young. And and since I was in school um, about the same time, actually, I'm not that much older than he is. And you know, they've added these things like natural consequences. And yes, yes, you can't solve the problem. And they try to teach very early parents. So that early kids get that too. I'm hoping that that helps some of us all a little bit, you know, I hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. It would be good to see that. I'm pretty sure you already knew about before stage four um, with mental health America
1: of Kentucky. I really think that's a great program. I mean, that's so important. Right. Yeah.
0: And it, and you talk about so much of it actually in your book, which I really appreciate and why that's kind of why we selected it for our book conversation, which is happening on November 6th. I was kind of curious if there's any like early intervention you wish you had seen or that you have been seeing that like younger families might have seen now that you wish you had then.
1: Like, right. Interventions well,
0: I, or notice not- or just noticing things. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Well, you know, I think That was another reason I wanted to present so much of the backstory because there were sort of clues, (laughs) if you want to call them that, or symptoms that we observed early on, like the sleep disturbances when he was a child, for example, just waking up irritated, just super, super, super irritated. And I could never figure that out. And I just sensed that it was physiological, you know? I mean, this wasn't a behavior he was choosing. This was something he was feeling inside and there was no obvious uh, explanation for it. But, you know, I, I observed that and so did his father. And then when, you know, the big thing was when he became a teenager, then um, literally all hell broke loose. But even then, you know, I mean, if a, if a, if a person has been a pretty good student and then all of a sudden you observe things like truancy or, again, um, disruptions in their sleep cycle such that they're sneaking out at night, doing all kinds of things when they should be tired and so forth, or if their grades are slipping and that's that's time to get worried. You know, that's time when the school should say, you know, we've noticed that this student is really having difficulties here let's get together to figure out there's some underlying reasons for this behavior. Instead, it was sort of like, well, your son's acting out or, you know, we need to clamp down on this person or kind of a discipline thing. Uh, And, and I think when someone, you know, as we know now, a lot of times, People's behavior during the teen years—I mean, every every teen has some wild behavior when they're teens. I was, <laughs> yeah, but we it, all do. <laughs> it, yeah. you have there. There's a certain spectrum or a certain threshold beyond which you have to get concerned. Mm-hmm. And I think if those symptoms are shown, then you know it's really time for a conference and really time to start thinking about a mental health screening. And it, it doesn't have to be a scary concept. It's actually just a, it's a therapeutic. Tool to see what's going on, and then I think if people could get the help they they need, the treatment, the medication, the therapy, and everybody's on the same team, <laughs> you know, to yeah. help them, things are just going to work out way better. You probably know the statistic that um, a lot of these uh, disorders manifest themselves between the ages of fourteen and twenty-five, mm-hmm. and yet a lot of people, even though they have these symptoms. They, they don't ever get a diagnosis or treatment for maybe 10 years later. Yep. And unfortunately during that 10 years, things are just getting worse. Uh, people can have, you know, develop all kinds of other problems, legal, financial, be incarcerated, have a serious drug abuse issue, all because they're trying to treat those symptoms. And if we had a way to, to get people to care early, they wouldn't have to go down that long, twisting, dark road, you know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> my and son would
1: be the first one to say that because he's been down that road, and he would say, you know, if we whatever we could do to make things better for other people, that would be the way to go. He wouldn't wish that on his worst enemy. Kind of things he's had to do.
0: Right. I don't think anyone would. Uh-huh. And, and yeah, you're right about that. Ten years, and disturbingly, we just got our state of mental health report out from MHA National, and more than half of youth and adults who have adults with any mental illness so any signs of mental illness from 2017 and to 2018 mm-hmm. more than half still aren't getting treatment of any kind and our youth who have had a major depressive episode so yeah. somebody who's serious already right more mm-hmm. than half of them are not getting treatment yet in kentucky and we're in the top 10 ranking of all of the, like the top 20, I'm sorry, ranking of the states with those percentages. Isn't that mm-hmm. disturbing?
1: Yes. So, and I don't so think your do you son think or is- anyone
0: I know would want to do
1: that. So, why do you think that is, Marcy?
0: Um, some of the reasons we pontificate on, right, analysis would be there's still a ton of stigma, especially yes. in, in all I'm of right. our states. I think, yes. I don't think that's gone yet. I think we've made no. a lot of improvement. Yes, you know, 50% is still an improvement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're there, but we are definitely not there. And I think we need to stop. I had kind of thought, Oh, we don't need to do any more anti-stigma work, right? We've done all Mm -hmm. we can. And that no, clearly we haven't done what we can and, and we know what works, but we've got to permeate into those places we haven't reached yet, I think. Right. Um, And those mindsets and things. Mm -hmm. So we're still, you know, breaking toxic masculinity. Some of the more interesting groups that exist in Kentucky, uh, character wise, we need to work on how to reach those people appropriately. And I think we, I think we will, it's just going to take some time.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's actually harder for men, young men and young women, because, um, uh, in addition to the stigma of mental illness, there's also the, like you said, this idea of masculine identity as being strong and tough, you know, yeah, but I, that, if you don't recognize your vulnerabilities, you can't be strong, you know, <laughs> it's impossible. And I think it's, it's, it's a facade and a cover and it's actually harming men because they can't reach out for the help they need and they can't get the support that they need. Whereas I'm seeing it easier for women and I think it's just because of perceptions of masculinity and femininity.
0: I definitely see that, especially in my male friends that I know and people who've come into recovery, right. They tell me that that's something that they had to fight themselves to get over and to recognize that vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. And I think that's a really important statement that I hear from our peers a lot. So, yeah. And as you were
1: saying, I mean, the worst thing about stigma is not only the opinions of other people, but the way we absorb them and internalize them. And then we, we turn that on ourselves and we, keep ourselves from reaching out and that's or we minimize it too. I think there's so many of them who
0: minimize it or I can handle this. And that's where that self-medication comes into play, right? I can handle this. I'm strong enough. (laughs) Right. And I I love how you talked in the book about kind of how, you know, self-medication of drugs, like you took a a couple of journal entries, I think from your son Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, labeled like he did uppers and downers at different times of the day. And just to kind of regulate his mood.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah,
0: I just I was like, yeah, that's what they do, and like no one talks about that. You know, <laughs> it feels yeah. like no
1: one talks about that. So and the thing is, yeah, as a, as a naive parent, I mean, I'm I'm the kind of person where I debate whether I should really take an aspirin or not, you know, but son, I mean, he he's just the opposite, and of course, I never understood his his attitude toward those things, but. But once you understand the symptoms and controlling the symptoms and how, yeah, you can take a compound that might alter your energy level or make you feel better, of course, you're going to do it. You know, I mean, I might've been quite an expert (laughs) had I had that going on. So it just gave me a different outlook. But yeah, I I think that's very much a phenomenon that more of us need to understand. mm
0: -hmm. And back to your point about like, what causes that 50%, I also think that lack of health insurance and lack of paid. Oh, yes. Are huge issues in Kentucky. I know that a lot of our employers don't offer any kind of insurance. Mm -hmm. They don't have to offer mental health insurance. Mm -hmm. Parity only gets into play when they do offer it. So it's I think there's a lack of that. There's also, we know a dearth of providers. We do not have enough providers in the state of Kentucky mm -hmm. of mental health services. So yeah, I think the more we reach out to those communities that maybe don't have providers and try to get providers from there, like, you know, take right. them out, train them, put them back into their hometowns, um, mm-hmm. what appropriate and good for that person, obviously not everyone can do that. But, you know, I think that's something that we need to do better as a state. And that's part right. of that before stage four, make this a career choice, make this a career choice you choose because you want to come back home you know, right. that's going to be some of it. Cause I know that I'm from Ohio originally. So I get the Yankee label sometimes in parts <laughs> of Kentucky <laughs> and whatever I say doesn't fly, right. I'm not from the community. I have to have a community voice when I enter some of those places. So, mm-hmm. and that's just cultural humility and cultural, you know, understanding that that's what mm-hmm. we need. And I think that we need to do better at that. So.
1: Oh yes. I think so too.
0: And I know that NAMI is doing a great job of it where they are. It's just a matter right. of getting it to all those places that we just can't reach, and we can't all of us be anywhere. So, um, I do love that we and NAMI work together so much across the state. I mean, we're very complimentary, and we tend to be at the same tables, which I appreciate because I don't think every state has that, but here we just really see it as a big picture issue, right? We see the mm-hmm. whole picture, yeah. and we're yeah. so rarely at, at odds with each other. It's nice because <laughs> we can get oh, more yeah. done together. So. As we say, divided, we fall right in the state of Kentucky, Yeah. <laughs> sometimes True. in your own home, right? <laughs> uh, yes. yes. As the book kind of illustrates in lots of ways to bring it back to that, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, when writing about your own life, though, I'm curious because, you know, when you're writing about you, right, For you're sure. also writing about your son. Right. Um, and I know that gets complicated. I was wondering like what kind of efforts you took to talk to him about it or, you know, the other people that you feature, there are lots of folks in your life who kind of come through the book at different points. Mm-hmm. I was curious how you approach that because when we tell our stories, we can't eliminate the other people. And I'm just curious
1: how you handle right. that. Right. Well, I was very worried about that at the outset. Because at the time when my son was younger, he was very hush-hush about things. Like there were a lot of things he didn't want me to talk about with anyone. Um, But I, you know, I gradually told him that I was seeing, uh, that I was in the NAMI family support group. And he knew that I, you know, that that was a good place for me. That, you know, we we, we agree that what we are going to reveal in the group is going to be confidential and won't be uh, revealed. And so when I got to... I'm just taking this as an example. When I got to the point in the book where I actually wanted to include some of the stories, because it was such a part of my own growth and my own expanding awareness, that I thought, you know, I want to share this. First of all, I um, changed the names of the people. And I, before I got anywhere near publishing it, I copied those parts and gave them to them to read. And I said, you know, this is going to be in a larger book, mainly about myself. And, um, I want you to know what I'm saying here because it's, it's based on your experiences and things you shared. And I just want to make sure it's okay with you. So I got their permission.
0: (laughs) Well,
1: I felt that that was just an ethical obligation because I would be furious if somebody wrote about me, you know, (laughs) asked me my permission and left my name (laughs) in, I would be furious. So, you know, I felt like I wanted to have a little screen of uh, you know, it's a fig leaf, if you will, but for my family, the only people that are going to know are people in my immediate community who have known my family for a long time, even though I disguise the names they're going to recognize. I didn't use the real names of the family members. And so I figure in the big world, nobody's going to know. And I think I, you know, I think just by writing about them, I mean, I I tried to, um, I mean, I certainly wasn't grinding any axes. I wasn't I, when I was writing about my son, <laughs> I made every effort I could to present his side of things, which was very good for me. It was very ther- therapeutic for me because I could try to see, well, you know, when I wrote about his childhood, I wrote about those young teen years and what happened to him in the program that he was in and so forth. I realized, oh my God, you know, your son's been through a heck of a lot. This must've been difficult, you know? And I, cause when I was living through it, I was just thinking about my own side of things as the kind of traumatized parent. Right but Then, when I looked at it writing the story from his angle, too, I realized well, he was very much a traumatized child just by virtue of having this um, disorder and nobody understanding it, and people telling him it was a behavioral issue and you know this and that and loading all this blame and shame on him when in fact, he didn't really understand what was going on with him, so how could he respond well? It was helpful, and I think now um my hope is that my son will read my book eventually. <laughs> then he'll agree to read it. Maybe, maybe, like I say in the book, oh, maybe he'll understand this in ten years from now or twenty years from now. You know, mm-hmm. I wondered that's- if he'd read it. <laughs> well, so yeah. I think he's too busy. Frankly, he's too busy with his own life, and I couldn't and be happy. That's happier. good. I couldn't that's be good. Happier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he's moving forward, and that's good. He's working. He he's dealing with his um his health issues. He knows he has to do that. He knows he has to maintain his mental health and it's it's going to take work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I just think he's still an at-risk person. He's always going to be an at-risk person. But um, I think now at least he has some of the supports he's going to need to to move forward. And that's really important to me, more important to me than looking back and reading mom's book. <laughs> right. Exactly. You don't
0: need to see where you've been. You already know you've been there. Let's move forward. Absolutely. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the main thing for him now. I was wondering what you hope people will take away from reading suspended sentence. I was just curious what you're hoping that you are providing um, to others. And we kind of touched on it earlier, but I'd love to. Yeah. Hear
1: yeah. Well, <clears throat> just, just reactions from people. I think it's it's different with different people. Some people who have had similar experiences in their past who are kind of in my generation, they, I think they felt the book very intensely because it makes them relive, you know, the experiences they had. So my hope for them would be that it would be therapeutic ultimately, even though it might waken up some trauma from the past, hopefully, you know, they can have a new perspective. And I think when you know somebody else has shared the road with you a little bit, even independently, it, um, kind of affirms what you've been through. It's um, it, you know it's it's testimony, and I think that can help people um, know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. And then for other people who haven't had these experiences or maybe wonder, well, why are other people having so much difficulty? you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think if they read this book, they'll get a sense of that, that they'll have a, a wider understanding. Well, you know, people deal with different issues and it's just not the same, you know. And also just recognize that people who have something like bipolar, I mean, not all bipolar people are the same. Each one is absolutely individual. And Mm -hmm. the degree to which the illness impacts them is is different. And their personalities and motivation, everything is, is different. So I think it's, it's important to separate people from the the syndrome and, and, and respect their individuality because yeah, everyone's, everyone's a person.
0: Yeah. Kind of like what I said in the trigger warning, right? There's one story, one person's lived experience and that's okay. Um, yeah. yeah, And I think there are people who are still hurting, who hear our things sometimes with these one stories and they're like, Mm -hmm. but that's not my experience. Not everybody. And I'm like, no, that's, that's the point right is but we only learn by by hearing the many different stories we can see oh you never really do understand even when you share the same syndrome share the similar characteristics right Right. it's never the same story and I think that's important and that individualism means we all learn and cope and heal differently that's Um, true that's so so true I definitely see your healing in the book and I think that's good where you kind of become a little more independent yourself right and a little yeah. bit more able to put things in, in perspective, which I think
1: is one of those things you all have to learn
0: yes. as you go. Am I wrong though? <laughs> I don't no, know.
1: No. It's key. It's key. I think. Yeah. I think it was very therapeutic for me and I think, yeah, the, the healing goes on. Yeah. You know, over time. Yeah. I'm sure even
0: conversations like this, eventually you've come up with something you didn't think about and there it is. Right. So, and right. you've reached yeah. other people with this book and right. I think that's great. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure we cover in the podcast today?
1: I I was thinking about uh, one thing I'm seeing is that I think the younger generation is really taking this on with a lot of courage and uh, innovation, even like I was really impressed with um, just recently, I came upon some interviews that this young woman, Lily Cornell Silver, I think is her name was an Instagram she was doing on a program called mind wide open. She was doing um, interviews with mental health professionals and also uh, talking a lot about her own struggles. Like you said, fighting in the open. And I thought, wow, this is so exciting. I mean, here's a 20 year old woman. She's so articulate and she's just, you know, (laughs) talking about these things so openly and so sort of matter of factly, but with great passion too. And I thought, wow, this is this is hopeful, you know, because if someone can do that at such a young age and bring more people with her earlier into the into the struggle, this is very hopeful for everyone. And uh, she interviews men, women, um, and and every single person she's had has been very open about their own struggles. And like we were just talking about, it helps you see how even people who are dealing with similar things like anxiety or depression, it affects them differently and they express it differently. And some of them actually use it differently, like the musicians and so forth, you know, you know, this is part of what they write about or part of what fuels their art actually and their expression right. is what they're dealing with. And mm-hmm. I just think this is really, really significant. You know, I like to hear someone who's actually living with it as opposed to somebody who's an expert telling us, here's right. what you should do. And, here are the five bullet points you should cover and then you'll be fine, you know, and we know that's not true.
0: <laughs> no, the bullet points are usually a launching point, but that's it at best.
1: Really? Yeah, <laughs> I'm exactly. like, yeah
0: we sometimes put out lists. We don't love them though, because we know that they're not perfect. So yeah, yes. I was wondering if you've seen Stamina Kentucky yet. Yeah, no, all no. youth voices in Kentucky. They're Pritchard students. Uh, the Pritchard excellence students are very articulate, very at working on educating about mental health at the at the child level, um, at the like high school student level, they're all high school students. So um, would I podcast
1: stamina, Kentucky, or how would I find I can that? send you the, their link. Oh, I would I'll, love I'll put it, it would in the show
0: that. notes when we do the podcast. So y'all, yeah, I would love that. Um, yeah. It's really cool. They're awesome students and I've really been impressed with them. Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah. And well, I actually did see a program. I think it was, oh, what was her name? Renee Shaw. She yeah. had a, um, I'm really impressed with those students and also parents and teachers who are involved in forming these kind of um, support circles and so forth. Yeah, those that was fun. one theme throughout yeah, the, that the was book and like,
0: our conversation, uh, the community piece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I'm like, you've created a community, you've found a community, but you've also yes. built one, right, for yourself and your son and yeah, yeah, I find that we all need that sense of community, especially in a pandemic, but all the time, um, right. <laughs> you know, right. and I find that interesting. And I find those students who are forming communities via all these great social media tools. You know, we hear so much about social media can be yes. bad and it can, but it yeah. can also be a great tool for education and bonding with okay. people, especially when you don't fit, right? You don't fit somewhere.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 And that was the theme it. in the book too. Like my son trying to fit in and right. then finding out couldn't fit in. So then <laughs> he goes over to the rebel side. But yeah, I think fitting in and finding your peer group and finding your, your tribe. I mean, that's really important.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: being connected to the larger group too. It doesn't mean you just hide in your tribe. It means you, right. you have a support group, but you're also connected to the wider world.
0: Right. You have to have both. And that's the hard part to find and and the balance to strike, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking time to write and publish this story for being willing to speak out and live in the open. As I've said before, for those of you looking for a copy of Suspended Sentence, we'll post links and several methods in our show notes. Make sure you choose Amazon Smile and Mental Health Association if you're going to use Amazon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Additional Mm -hmm. information and materials, including ways to access treatment, can be found now at mhaky.org. To find substance abuse treatment in your area, please go to findhelpnowky.org. There's no health without mental health. We hope you make sure to take care of
1: yours.